Ultimately, everything kind of boils down to one question. What's the fucking point? So, let's talk about it. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and this podcast brings a little levity and a lot of curiosity to some of the biggest questions and ideas that us meager humans can ponder. Join me and our guests each week as we dig into topics around consciousness, spirituality, psychology, and philosophy, all with a healthy dose of existential angst. And now, today's episode. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Happy July. We are now past that halfway mark of the year insanity, and the show is now a month old. So you know how like when people have babies and for the first like year they celebrate all of those tiny little milestones. So uh, this feels like a milestone that I made it this far without going, holy shit, what am I doing? I can't do this. Who do I think I am to be doing this? So I'm going to keep trucking along because I got some other awesome interviews to share with you guys, other people who will be coming on the show soon. And I cannot tell you how freaking excited I am for you to hear today's conversation with Karen Kenny. So Karen is a writer, a speaker, and the founder of Fearless Flow Mentoring. She has been a student and a guide of A Course in Miracles for 25 plus years and a certified yoga teacher since 2001. Karen is known for her storytelling, her sense of humor, and her down-to-earth approach to spirituality. She helps people let go of their old stories of suffering and victimization so they can write a new kick-ass story from that inner place of power, forgiveness, and spirit. Karen leads transformational retreats at the renowned Omega Institute in New York and in the New England area. She's currently at work on her memoir and her podcast upcoming, Wicked Hard, is also in development. So that's Karen in a nutshell. She is an animal lover. She is um, a dropper of F-bombs. She has the most amazing accent that you are ever going to hear And she's just someone who is truly magnetic. And every time that I catch her Facebook Live videos or see what she's posting about, I just always feel nourished. And that is to me, and and it feels genuine. So that to me is a sign of someone who is really walking the path, really doing their work. And I'll tell you a little bit more. Karen will share some in the interview about A Course in Miracles and about her work with it. But just to give you very basic background, because I I don't think that she went there in the interview. Um, So A Course in Miracles was first published in the 1970s. It was a channeled work. So however, whatever that means to you. Um, But it's it's pretty dense. I actually have come across it over the years But until recently, very recently, I've always kind of resisted it. I I started by getting into or trying to get into Marianne Williamson's work because Marianne Williamson is somebody who is a powerhouse in sort of the self-development and spiritual growth, spiritual development um, arena. And her book, Return to Love, which I believe was written in the early 90s or published in the early 90s, is sort of like the cornerstone foundation. Like if you don't know where to start with A Course in Miracles, if you're interested in dipping your toe in, read this book. Um, And then more for like the millennial generation, 
Gabby Bernstein was then sort of a mentor or mentee of uh, Marianne Williamson. And so her books kind of kind of speak to a little bit of the younger generation, just a little bit of shift in languaging. And of course, Gabby sharing her own perspective, her own stories and experiences. But so so I like Gabby Bernstein's work and I was drawn to that, but I was kind of finding myself wanting to go a little bit deeper with the messages of A Course in Miracles, but also simultaneously resisting it. So when I first picked up a copy of Return to Love, um, gosh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I opened it, I started reading it, and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm on board. And then she started talking about God and using all of the traditional male pronouns for he and him and all of that stuff. And I just bristled at that. And I know that that's kind of my own stuff, my own limitations of not being able to just look past a word, but I am just, I cannot with the patriarchy, you guys. I just watched Thelma and Louise this weekend with my friend, and holy shit. Um, I cannot believe I hadn't seen that before. Blew my mind. What a message about smashing the patriarchy. Obviously, we don't need to, like, go out and kill each other, but um, what a story. If you have not seen it, immediately go and see it. Um, so that was a sidebar. But anyway, back to the patriarchy. I can't get over the language. And so I, after like trying to get a little bit into the book back when I first got it, I just said, okay, this is not for me. And it kind of just turned me off and I just shut down to all of it. Meanwhile, sort of following Karen and her work um, and... Then recently I've been sort of following Karen's work even more and getting more interested. And then when I decided to contact her about being on the show because she's really a dream guest, she's like a perfect person to come on this show, I started, I said, okay, you know what? After after the interview, which was a little over a week ago from when I'm recording this intro, I was so inspired. I said, fine, okay universe, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, fine. I will go get this stupid book. So I went to the used bookstore locally and got a copy of Return to Love for a dollar. So if you're curious about this, it's one of those books that is often um, very cheap at used bookstores because there were just so many copies printed. And I'm sure you could get it really, really cheap used on Amazon too. So got that, got A Course in Miracles, and again, really kind of a thick, dense text. I'm not even really going to open it until I'm done with Return to Love, which I'm already about halfway through, and I don't normally read books that quickly, but I've just been sucked into it. And I have to admit, which I actually told one of my clients who listens to the show, shout out, you know who you are, you're amazing. Um, There was a little piece of it that I wanted to share with her recently, so I had to tell her my disclaimers of, of um, why I sort of bristled and why I wouldn't blame anybody who sort of initially encounters this, who doesn't really find themselves in the traditional religion box, um, why I understand how it could be really easy to just like throw it all out and say like, oh, I don't like these words, I don't like this framing, so therefore this is not for me. And so I kind of shared with her like, that that's um, been my journey and that I'm sort of now able to get past that 
and really um, get into the concepts that really do resonate. So anyway, all that to say, I told her that I had to replace all of the male pronouns as I'm reading the book. I'm like writing over it like her and she and all of that. And I think I may have said this on the podcast before, um, that it's not even necessarily that I think that like universe or spirit or love, whatever this like all encompassing source energy is, is female more than it is male, but it's, I don't really think of it as a gendered thing, but as I understand that the way that our language is limited and limits us, that it helps to have something there. And it almost feels like a little too irreverent. It's funny, as I'm talking about this, I'm remembering there's, that's actually something that um, was alluded to in Robin Wall Kimmerer's interview on On Being a couple of years ago, uh, where she talks about, I'll have to go back and look that up now, I'll put it in the show notes for you. But she talks about that and how like this, when we're talking about like the earth, for instance, that the pronoun it just doesn't really seem to cut it. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have to gender earth or source or whatever but um she she came up with or or i think from some kind of indigenous culture there was some like alternate word and so she was saying like oh maybe let's use this so anyway we'll find out when we (laughs) look that up and put it in the show notes for you to check out um so anyway yes i did replace the pronouns just because she and her and hers is easier for me to read um, and not feel like the patriarchy sort of breathing down my neck, but it's phenomenal. And I'm going to share with you just a little paragraph snippet from Return to Love, and then we'll get into the interview. So this is in the part of the book where Marianne Williamson is talking about relationships. And even though the book is called Return to Love, that doesn't mean that in the whole book we're talking about like romantic love relationships. There is a section where she's talking about that within this chapter, but it's it's like capital L love, like universal love, um, of which there are many sort of manifestations, but it's all sort of the same thing. So... Okay, so here she says, None of us are really objectively attractive or unattractive. There is no such thing. There are people who manifest the potential for sparkle that we all share, and those who don't. Those who do are usually people who, somewhere along the line, either from parents or lovers, were told verbally or non-verbally, You are wonderful and beautiful. Love is to people what water is to plants. So that really, really spoke to me, and it made me think, too, about what we talked about a couple weeks ago on the episode where Annie Diomedes and I talked about the Mr. Rogers movie. And funny enough, Karen went and saw the movie after we had this interview, and she then posted a Facebook Live about just how much it resonated with her, too. So you can go on her Facebook page and check that out. But that is exactly like the people who were given that message at some point, you were wonderful and beautiful, or I like you just the way you are, that those are often the people who are able, they've either kind of worked through whatever wounding they have, or they had enough of that sort of baseline love, that water in their plant, that they're able to sparkle. But we all have that capacity. And I also love how on the next page, just one more little snippet here, Um, where, because she does kind of talk about how even though we don't all start from that 
equal footing because of our different experiences and the different ways in which we were raised. She is like very much about like, I'm not about to let you use that as like an excuse basically. And that we can't just be constantly like, even though we have to revisit the past to heal sometimes, we can't just stay stuck there. Um, she says, at, at a, after a certain point, the discussion always becomes circular. The only way to the light is through entering the light. So this example I loved, um, she, she quotes, well, my parents didn't tell me I was beautiful. Poor me is not a miracle minded thought. Rather, it supports a feeling of victimization. The miracle minded attitude here would be my parents didn't tell me I was beautiful. The value of knowing this is that I'm now clearer about why I don't have an easy time letting anyone else tell me that, and I understand why I haven't developed the habit of saying it to others. I can develop the habit now. The choice to give what I haven't received is always an available option. And I'll just add that I think that that is always getting to that place. I don't think we can do it alone when we have had a lot of wounding. I think that we were we wound each other, we are wounded by others, and we heal with others. So if you feel like, well, I don't know how just to get to that miracle-minded attitude, um, that we having some connection around it and being able to have some of those people in your life now who recognize your beauty and just how perfect you are, even in our imperfection, right? We are at the soul level essentially perfect, so um, there was another thing I was going to say about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so the definition of miracle really is the shift in our perception from fear to love. So it's not these like necessarily how we think of miracles in pop culture, although they can be just as powerful as those, but that miracles happen all the time and can happen all the time if we just ask for help in shifting our perception. So... Anyway, this has been a long intro, but hopefully a useful one and hopefully really sets the stage for this conversation to be really special for you as much as it was for me. I hope that you enjoy and I'll see you on the other side. Karen Kenny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. I thought the name uh, of the show was fantastic. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it was more perfect brand show for me and this was it so I'm so I was so jazzed to be asked so thank you for the warm invite it's awesome to be here definitely like I literally couldn't like make up a more ideal guest I think for this show <laughs> so I'm gonna try not to like fangirl but um oh, yeah. just so my audience knows Karen is amazing <laughs> oh you're so sweet thank you honey um, so I'm going to ask you a super random question to start oh, just because it's something, yes, something that I see both on your pillow in the background there. And I know is on the back of your shirt is the peacock feathers and yes. being a person who is also, I have one right here on my back. Um, tell me about what is your connection or love of the peacock or the peacock feather? All right, so it kind of starts with actually the t-shirt I have on then. So what you have here, it says, uh, stop playing dumb. So just to put <laughs> it in context, so people are like, well, that's kind of a rude thing to say. But just to put it in context, it's like, so I'm a spiritual mentor, but I'm also a writer and a speaker and a storyteller mostly. Like I really identify as a storyteller. I love to tell stories. But um, being a, a spiritual mentor, like so much of the work that I do 
is helping people what I call move from your story to your glory. So basically moving from your old bullshit stories about why you can't, right? Why you are small or separate or scared or stuck, all those things. How do we, um, as in, in A Course in Miracles would say, you know, your task is not to seek for love uh, because love is what you already are. So you don't have to, so I'm paraphrasing it. You don't have to go looking for the fucking thing you are. It's right there, right? So your task is not to seek for love. Your task is to seek and find, and I would say, and remove the barriers or the blocks, I would say, AKA bullshit stories, you have built against your own awareness of love's presence. Okay, so what we really are is love, or what I would say is you're one of God's kids. You are a child of God. You are an extension of love itself. You are an extension of the divine. Your only job here is to extend that love. And there's lots of different ways. Like you might do it as a therapist. I do it as a mentor, a writer, or whatever the yoga teaches, like whatever we do. So for me, it's like when I started thinking about people have such a hard time, like first of all, identifying with their true selves, and then kind of stepping into the power that the knowledge of your true self like brings you. Like when you remember, hello, that's what yoga is all about, is um, self, capital S, true self-realization, remembering that you and the divine are already one. Hello, yoke, join, you yep. the one, right? All this non-dual stuff. So for me, it's like I started thinking about like people just kind of forget their own brilliance. Mm -hmm. People all the time forget their own brilliance. They have what I call spiritual amnesia or they purposefully do not want to remember what I call willful ignorance. Because mm -hmm. if you accept what you really are, I always do this as like alignment of who you really are with the divine. Yes. If you accept that you're one of God's kids, if you accept that you are love incarnate, like you are love itself, what could you do not do? Like you are powerful, as Marianne Williamson says, like you are powerful beyond measure. Mm -hmm. But if you are to accept that about yourself, you have to stop your bitching, your moaning, your playing small, your victimization, right? So all that shit goes out the window, all your excuses go. So I always say to people, right? Stop playing dumb about who you are. So where the peacocks come in is that, um, so it's, it's a couple of things. So I always just thought about, I'm a total animal lover. I've been an animal lover my whole life. I've been, um, you know, pretty dedicated. Uh, I don't like to say hardcore because it sounds militant, but I'm an ethical and lifestyle, not just a dietary vegan. Um, so I've been a vegan for like 15, over 15 years now. And I just love animals. So I'm just really aware of animals as my brothers and sisters as being these beautiful beings that they are. But peacocks in particular are like totally mind-blowing. Here's what I love about peacocks in reference to us and in, um, in comparison or in um, like as an example of our humanity and our divinity being in, like being in this one thing. Peacocks are just kind of a weird fucking bird, okay? If you just look at them, they look like they're from another planet. They do. And, it, and in A Course in Miracles, there's a beautiful line that basically says, you know, you feel like you're an alien here because you are. Because this is not your real home. Your oneness with God, you know, in, whether you want to say in heaven or in oneness is where we belong. And that's why we feel so weird here. And that's why we compete and compare and hustle and try to tear each other down and try to 
like all, all the crap that comes with this humanness, right? And there's a lot of beauty, but there's also a lot of suffering, right? Okay, so you got these big weird birds who are just kind of like walking around like, right? right? Just fucking eating bugs and doing shit. And, and they're pretty amazing looking, but they're not quite. And then all of a sudden it's like, Yep. And they spread. It's like, and it's like, that's right. I'm a peacock, motherfucker. Right? And they have a memory of themselves. They remember who they really are. And they're not apologizing for it. A peacock doesn't walk around apologizing for being a peacock. It just goes about its business of being a peacock. And it's kind of how I feel about, like, there's a, um, I remember when, I don't know if you know who Marie Forleo is, but yeah. she's like the creator of B-School and all that stuff. So when mm -hmm. Marie came onto the scene, a lot of people started being like, I want to be a badass like Marie. Like, I want to be a badass. And I always kind of jokingly said, when I would see branding on people's website about being a badass, I'm like, here's the thing that I know about badasses. They don't walk around saying they're a badass. They just go about the business of being a badass and other people will notice. And that's how it is with peacocks. They're not shoving it in their, your face when they just do what they do. But it's like, so for me, the peacock, and, and it's so interesting because I'm about to launch this whole thing with my friend Molly Brandt, who's um, the creator of uh, Be Adorable. It's like Be Adorable. But we're, she's exclusively making me these incredible um, peacock necklaces. Awesome. So, yeah, they're really, really, really cool. And so these like are like a way for people. So you'll see it on the pillows. It's my logo. It's on my website. Because what it is is it's an external reminder of an inward condition. Mm. It's an external reminder that you are a peacock, that you are this beautiful, brilliant creation. Mm -hmm. You know, and that it's, it's, it's a way to remind yourself of who you really are. Because it's really easy in this world to forget. It's really easy in this world to get lost, to get confused, to be torn down, right? From the time that we're little kids, right? Mm -hmm. We're getting pumped full of other people's opinions, beliefs, thought systems. How do you think it ended up that we all ended up eating animals? When most little kids, I would say 100% little kids, if you put an apple, a carrot, a pig, piglet, like in a bunny in front of them, they will never, ever, ever try to eat the bunny and the pig. They will always go for the fruit. Yeah. But we were told, like, we eat these things, right? So we have all these things from the outside being pushed on us. So by the time we're adults, so many people just have no concept of who they really are. Mm -hmm. So for me, the peacocks are an invitation to come home to yourself. Awesome. It's an invitation to remember your strength, your power, your beauty, your creative capacity, and to just like know that we're all peacocks. Like, I always say, none of us are special and all of us are special. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's yeah. just a symbol of the divine expressing itself through you. I fucking love that because it really all right, is really long answer. <laughs> I apologize, but that's the no, truth. It's great. I mean, it's all the context around it. Cause my, my like five second version of that. And, and that was really awesome to hear because now I'll be able to articulate this better oh, yeah. is why I love peacocks and why I have one tattooed on my back and why those were the colors I used in my wedding was because you look at that and you're like, holy shit, this is just in nature. Like this is just happening. And that's how we are too. But you know, we yes. might not have natural pretty colors, but like 
that it's holy shit. It's amazing. It is amazing. And we are amazing. And we have a capacity like to be amazing. And there's so much fear like, well, you know, I remember one of the things it's like, if I be, get too, if I shine too bright, it's going to make other people uncomfortable. So I have to keep my tail feathers down. I mean, I can't quite hide, right, that I got something to offer because I'm a peacock. But I can just at least keep them down so I don't attract too much attention because I'm afraid of being judged. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, look, if they want to judge you, right, they're not your people. Exactly. You know, they're not your people. So there's nothing, like Marian Williamson says, you know, uh, Marian's a beloved friend and like my spiritual mom. And, and she says in her famous quote, there's nothing enlightened about shrinking so other people won't feel uncomfortable or insecure around you. And so when you do full plumage, right, when you let your uh, little peacock feathers like want, you give other people permission to step into it too. And you give them an opportunity to recognize themselves in you. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. I know what that is because, you know. So I just think it's beautiful. And it's so kismet. I had no idea that you had a peacock tattoo. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I was just like looking back at your website again before we started and I was like, oh yeah, I remember she's, she's into the peacock thing. I got to ask about that. So yeah, I I talk about that a lot and it's interesting. It's like, um, at least once a day, at least once Mm -hmm. a day, somebody will text me or write to me or Instagram friend me or something and like, look what I saw today. And I get all these images of peacocks like all the time. And it's like, there's just a connective thread that people really uh, resonate with it. And so it's beautiful that you do too. Yeah. So I guess my next question is, I feel like nobody comes to this level of clarity, awareness, truth without going the hard way, right? Without experiencing the suffering first. So I'd love for you to just share anything that you want to share about your, your background, your history, that sort of brought you to the point of waking up to all of this? Yeah, I mean, for sure. So there's a lot of different, uh, so there's like a main story and then there's all these little offshoots. So I'll mm-hmm. just try to jump into the, to like what I would call the heartbeat of the inspiration, the influence of uh, wh- why I do what I do um, and why I give a shit about helping other people connect to the divine and, and re- like transform their stories through divine alchemy, right? Into, um, into something. I always say like your greatest, like your greatest, wound can become your greatest strength mm-hmm. and that's kind of what my story is all about so the short version I'll try to be short the short version is is that um, I grew up in a, a tough little uh, river I would say it's like a mill town it's like a river river city there's a river that runs right through the Merrimack River so a little city called uh, Lawrence Mass it's like 30 miles north of Boston if people haven't heard figured out my accent yet that's like <laughs> so like I'm like a Boston kid and um and growing up in Lawrence was like kind of tough. Like it was a lot of low income, uh, a lot of stuff, but it was also like Lawrence kids are loyal for life, man. That's one thing I'll say about us. And so it's a tough little city, blue collar family. We lived in a, like a triple DECA and we lived in like a double DECA. Like there, it was very rare. We, we had our own house that we rented, but like, it was never like we had a home and like, you know, money was always tight. Uh, my dad, my dad was my stepdad. My, my mom and my biological father got divorced when I was like two so I didn't really know him or remember him. And then my stepdad, uh, who I consider my dad, came onto the scene when I was like three-ish, you know, right around that same time. 
And uh, he was with us for about nine years, from the time I was like three to the time I was 12. And my parents, God bless them, were, um, I always say, they were wicked smart and wicked stupid at the same time. They were actually very intelligent people, but they were young. Like parenting back in the 60s and 70s is so different than how it is now. So you had, like my mother had, had me and my sister, my sister's like 18 months older than me, when she was like 19, like 20. So I, when I think about 20-year-olds trying to raise kids, I think, what? <laughs> yeah. what? Like, God bless. Good luck with that, right? So they both had good jobs. My dad worked at Wonder Bread for like 30 years or something. My mother was an insurance underwriter. And even though they had good jobs, we never had money. So like the lights would get turned out. There'd be no power. There wouldn't be enough food. I mean, we always had fucking Twinkies, but we didn't always have milk or things that like, you know, we needed or whatever. And so their, their relationship was very volatile. My parents did not know how to communicate. It would be like from zero to screaming. It was like, um, um, like daily fucking fighting, like growing up in a war zone. You know what I mean? If there's any people out there listening, you know exactly what I'm talking about if you grew up in a similar place. If there was any kind of alcohol involved in your family's life or any kind of not an ability to communicate or express love in a healthy way. So, you know, there was a lot of instability. They would fight all the time. He was always leaving. We didn't know if he'd come back. So even though there was a lot of disruption, there was also like this fear because there was like an uh, undertone of like violence always in Lawrence, you know what I mean? So when, when, when at one point, I always say like my, my dad left like 18,000 times and one of the last times he left, was like the winter of 80, 1980, and he went to go live with my auntie Mo. And so it was just me, my sister, and my mother um, in our apartment on South Broadway in Lawrence. And my mother was 33, it was a week away from her 34th birthday. So she was 33 years old. And uh, my mom used to go out. My mom was in a bowling league. My dad was in the same bowling league. Um, so my mother like was, um, going out that night. So Wednesday, May 6th, 1981, my mom goes out and we thought we were so cool. My sister was 13, about to turn 14 a week later. Her and my mom's birthday was like a day apart. I was 12 and we were like, we're so cool because we don't need a babysitter. Like mom's going out, nobody's gonna watch us. But we didn't know like Mrs. Turgeon downstairs was like keeping an eye on us, right? Nice. And so, yeah, so we, but, but my sister's best friend was Sue Turgeon who lived downstairs. So it was like kind of cool because it was like extended family, whatever. So we, we hadn't seen our dad in like a while. He was living at my auntie Mo's. I always say he was already, already had a new girlfriend. He wasn't interested in us. You know what I mean? I hadn't seen him in a while. And, um, so he, um, my mom went out that night and she would always kiss us goodnight when she came home. And she usually came home around like 11 o'clock midnight, whatever it was. And, and I didn't remember getting a kiss that night. I woke up the next morning and uh, I heard somebody moving on the other side of the apartment and I got up and I went and my sister was standing in the doorway of my mother's bedroom, still in her pajamas. And so I came up beside her and we looked at my mother's bed and it hadn't been slept in. And we were like, well, what the What's going on? Because our job was to get my mother's ass out of bed in the morning because she was not a morning person. And so we, you know, we looked outside, we looked out the window, we lived on the second floor, her car wasn't there. You know, we looked at the ashtray, there were no marbles snubbed out, there was no coffee cup, and we're like, we didn't know what it was going on. But then we're like, maybe she just had an early client, she forgot to tell us, you know, and whatever. And so my sister, I always say, I was a naive 12-year-old. My sister was a very mature 13-year-old. She was a little bit wiser to the ways of the world. So she feigned being sick and she sent me on to school. And when I went to school, like all day long, like my mother was like 
the sun to my planets. You know what I mean? Like she was the thing that my whole world revolved around. She was the great love of my life. And um, I just adored her. I was at that age right before it gets weird with moms and daughters. You know what I mean? I was still in love with her. I'd, I'd only gotten my period once. I was a wicked tomboy. I didn't want to be a girl, you know? And, and it was just like, but my mother was like my sun, my moon, my stars. And she had a really strong gravitational pull for me. And so I couldn't wait to get home from school and see her because I didn't get to see her in the morning, you know? And she was kind of like my human security blanket, you know? And so, um, when I came home from school, you know, I just said to my sister, have you heard from Ma yet? And she was like, no. And I had no idea what my sister had been doing for those eight hours. And I always say, in fact, it took about 27 years for us to ever talk about that day. Wow. My family just never really talked about things, right? So what ended up happening is after uh, an hour or so of being home, we heard a car door like slam out front. And we ran to the window and it was my dad. Uh, getting out of my uncle Ronnie Bonanno's car and I was like dad and my sister was like what the is he doing here because their relationship was very volatile and uh, my dad was brutal to my sister he was kind of brutal to all of us but he was especially brutal to her and he was always like you know up against the wall because my I, I really learned how to contort myself into being like people pleasers of the world, right? You, you learn that skill set at a very young age to be whatever you needed to be to be safe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But my sister had a big mouth, so she would always say whatever she wanted to say, and it cost her. It cost her. So he showed up. He comes upstairs. Long story short, we ask him, like, you know, well, like, what's going on? He just basically says, sit down. Mm. And so we sat on the couch. He sat on the coffee table facing us. He wouldn't look at us. He wouldn't say anything. It was dead quiet. And I was just like, oh, he's going to tell us that, like, we got to go pick up Ma. She had a car accident. She had a flat. Because back then, there were, no, there were no cell phones. It's 1981. Yeah. And he basically just looked at us, and he said, um, look, I'm just going to tell you. Your mother is dead. Mm. And my life has never been the same since. And basically what happened, again, condensing really long story, is that um, my mother was murdered and she was brutally beaten to death. She was kicked and punched to death. She ultimately was unrecognizable. They couldn't even ID her. That's how violent and vicious it was. And, um, you know, I don't mean to trigger anybody at home. I, I try to be sensitive about relaying this information because it's, it's part of my life. It's just, it is what it is. Uh, but I try to be mindful of it. But she ultimately, you know, was left alone to die on the side of the road. And she choked to death on her own blood. And, you know, she was found half naked from the waist down. So, you know, that he attempted to rape her or something happened. But it was just, it was just fucking awful, man. It was tragic. It was brutal. It was violent. And, um, you know, we were never allowed to talk about it. Like, it was on the news. It was in, on the TV, in the newspaper, on the radio. But my family would just shut it off and take it away. So it kind of created, like, I was the kid who, you know, there are some people, and you might know some folks like this, who they just don't want to know. La, 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 They would rather not know. For me, I'm a writer. I'm an e chronic eavesdropper. I'm a story creator and storyteller. And so for me, I have an incredible imagination. And so not knowing was worse. Mm-hmm. Not knowing was worse because my mind was, was just obsessive, and it became obsessed with figuring out like what happened that night. And so basically, um, you know, it's no surprise being a yoga teacher, like I became a yoga teacher, I've been teaching yoga for over 20 plus years. 
And it's because the whole foundation of yoga is ahimsa, which is nonviolence. <laughs> Hello, makes total sense, right? And so the hot beat of my teaching is that, and the reason why, a lot of the reason why I do the work that I do, is that when you start to transform your suffering, when you make a different choice, when you make a choice for love, when you start to understand that peace and happiness are your natural inheritance, I always say, happy people, usually, right? Happy people don't hurt people. Right. Happy people are usually trying to help people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like we know the old, you know, the saying, hurt people hurt people. And it's true. But happy people, so part of my work has always been to get people to see, because even though that was my greatest like wound, mm-hmm. over time it has been become like my greatest gift. And it's like it's in the heart of that darkness that you don't want to enter where the light, where the light lives. It's like Joseph Campbell says, you know, that cave, that dark cave you're afraid to go into is where the treasure lies. Yep. You know, and for me, like losing my mom in that way, it redefined how I thought of God, how I thought of the world. Like in the beginning, it wasn't soothing. I'm going to tell you, mm-hmm. I felt victimized. I was scared out of my mind. I didn't know who to trust. I didn't know. And, 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 and interestingly, I was a Catholic kid. I was raised Catholic. I never blamed God. There was not, not that going on, but there was a lot of questioning. Like, what is this all about? And then I had an experience with a, a priest uh, at, the, at a church, not that kind of experience, but getting yelled at in the confession booth for not knowing my act of contrition because, hello, I had fucking PTSD from having a murdered mother. It was only like, whatever, like a few months or whatever after her dying. And so I said, when, when he embarrassed me in that way in the church and he yelled at me, I, I said, I, when I went up, because my punishment was, you know, all the Hail Marys or whatever I had to do. So when I went up to the front of the church and I was just looking up at the statue of Jesus and Mother Mary and all this stuff, and I just said, no more, guys. No more middlemen. Hmm. It's me and you. And it's been that way ever since. So all of the hurt and the tragedy, like I often say, like, my mother was the compass that I used to navigate the world. Yeah. But when she was like, boom, like disappeared overnight, it forced me to be, become my own compass. It forced me to find my own internal true north and settings. Mm-hmm. And I just tell you, the, the way I was attached to her in human form, if she had stayed alive, I would be a radically different person. Yeah. A radically different person. I don't know if I would ever have left Lawrence. I don't know if I would have went to Boston University. I don't know if I would have moved to LA so I could meet Marianne and meet my spiritual teachers and to, to become um, a spiritual mentor and to do the work that, that I have been called to do. My ministry, my movement, my mission, my message, all that stuff was born out of that great, great, great loss. Mm-hmm. And it planted so many seeds that are bearing fruit all the time. Yeah. So it's like not only did that force you onto the path of journeying of like, how the hell do I live in this world where this kind of thing can happen, but also yeah. it happened to me. So my compass is gone. My security blanket, like the only stability that you knew is gone Yes, so to figure out how to stay alive through that. But then the eventual outcome of like the work that you're doing, like you said, happy people don't hurt people is helping people to align with that capital S self with what is most true for them. And from that place, ahimsa is spread. So yeah, the, it, the world it becomes less violent because of 
the work that you're doing that came from that initial violence. See how smart you are, you smarty pants? A hundred percent exactly. And it's also, it also informs why I'm vegan because there was at one point when like I knew what happened. So, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a great quote and I'm trying to, I don't know if it was Flannery O'Connor or me, I'm trying to think of who said it, but he was basically saying like writers need to have this ability this ability to just kind of stare, to mull and to muse why man does what he does. And ever since I was a little kid, I was always like, why mom? Like that was my mantra. Why mom? Why mom? Why mom? Like I always wanted to understand why things happen. And so even though I knew like what happened to her, I was like, what the hell happened? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find out. And so um, because everything was kept from me, like I went on this, uh, I became a little obsessed with telling the story. So I'm writing a memoir. Like that's what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to get um, my yeah. memoir done. But I wanted to know like, like, like what happened. And um, one of my biggest questions always was, did she suffer? Mm -hmm. Did she suffer? And, um, and um, you know, I would meet with people who, you know, read tarot cards or people who were psychics or people who were healers or spiritual teachers. And they would all give me answers that, although they were beautifully kind and often beautifully worded, I didn't know if I bought it yet. Like they would say things to me like, I believe her soul left her body before, you know, sometimes when there's an intense amount of physical pain, a soul will just leave or whatever. And they would always say these beautiful things. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't know that. And I'm a, even though I'm a, like a spiritual teacher, I, I, I'm interested in very fucking practical application. Science. It's, right? It has got to be not in the ethers of like, oh, like namaste. It's like, no, how can I apply this? How do I feel it in my bones? How do I know it's really true? Yeah. So um, I wrote to, I was living in California in Burbank and I, I wrote to the woman. I did a little research. I went home to Massachusetts at one point. I got to the local library. I found the name of somebody who had written one of the articles about my mother's murder trial. Mm. I always remembered that name. So I called the Eagle Tribune and it was when like, oh my God, this is so long ago. This is like when the internet was like first really coming out. So then I emailed her. I found out how to email her, and I wrote to her and I said, hey, I need help. Can you find all the articles like around this, like my mom's case? And she was so nice. Her name was Cheryl Rock. I will never forget. She was so nice. And she sent me this package all the way from Massachusetts to California. And I, I, I will never forget walking from the mailbox holding this, this, this manila envelope, 10 by 13. And it felt so heavy. And I was terrified. My heart was like, boom, boom, boom. Like a rabbit who's been chased, right? And I was like sweating. And I was like, oh, my God. And I finally, like I, my throat still constricts to this day when I think about it. And I finally opened it up. And I was just reading all the articles and reading all the stuff that, 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 that they said about what had happened to her because we weren't allowed to go to the trial and stuff like that. Um, and so there was one line that I read that said, and it's still like, oh, it still like punches me in the gut. But it said she had cuts and scrapes on her hands and knees from trying to get away. Mm. So she was alive. She did feel it. She did suffer. Yeah. And, and I was like, all beings given the chance, they will fight to the fucking end to live. Mm -hmm. All beings want to live. And all beings have a right to live without suffering, without um, slaughter, you know, murder, harm, abuse. Yeah. And so if, if I understood 
because now it had happened to me, the um, exponential effects of violence and what it felt like knowing that a creature, even though it was my mom, but a being had suffered, how could I participate in the murder, slaughter, abuse, suffering of these sentient beings, these animals that I've always loved? Yeah. And so like, to make my whole point is that that one act has informed the way that I speak, the way that I write, the way that I navigate the world, using that compass, the choices I make about what I eat, like everything is infused and not in a tragic way anymore. That's the whole point of taking that story and letting it inspire you and influence you and inform you, but it doesn't define you. Yeah, and it's truly new life and new growth. It's like out of the, out of the shit, out of the compost, right? It's, yeah. it's life. Yes. I mean, and it's so beautiful when you think about it, that my mother, although she might be dead in body, her spirit, like she's unencumbered without a body. So she can be everywhere at all times. I have way more access to her than time and space. Right, yeah. which is so beautiful. And so she gets to always be with me. And I don't feel like, obviously, when I was a little kid and right after this happened, because we're so attached to the physical, I felt so alone. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until, like, obviously, much later when I was curious about different spiritual traditions and healing and, and, and how to be, like, not be a hindrance in the world. Because here's the thing. If, if people don't get their shit together... Like, you know, as a therapist, like the work that you do to help people either look back and make some sort of peace or make some sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, look, shit just happens and you're trying to make sense of the senseless. Yep. There is not, there is, I could not, and that's a whole other story, but I couldn't, I kept thinking if I just know what happened, then I'll be peaceful. Yeah. I didn't realize that my peace was of my own doing. It was not something that had to be like, I'm like, nobody stole my piece. I gave it away. Mm. And so it was like when I realized that I am 100% responsible for how I interpret the world and what happens. Yeah. And so there's something fascinating. A Course in Miracles, it says, human eyes do not see, they interpret. Yep. And I just thought that's so fascinating. So we give everything the meaning that it has. And then there's a, a thing, there's a guy on Facebook, he's a famous photographer and he did this whole book called Humans of New York. Have you ever seen it or heard yeah. of it? Beautiful. Yeah, so yeah, it's great. And so he, um, you know, he, he had the snapshot one day of these two older white dudes sitting on a bench in the park, right? And he's like, so what are you guys? And they're like, oh, we're, we're eye doctors. And he said, tell us something fascinating about the eye that nobody really knows. And they both said, the eyes actually do not see. They reflect. They transfer information. It is the brain, you know, and I always say, this is the mind. Your brain is that gray, squishy material. But it's your mind, actually. So the eyes just take in the information, and it's your path. And they said, it's your memories, your past experiences, and, like, whatever, that actually shapes what you see. And I'm like, this is so fascinating because it actually is so much of what a course in miracles says that the eyes do not see they actually kind of interpret and what actually interprets is the mind so yeah. we say in any given situation right there's like this decision maker in your mind and it's only got two choices two emotional thought systems love or fear you could also look at them like two teachers holy spirit spirit or ego 
-hmm. And depending on which teacher you choose, you are going to have a very different experience, my friend. Because if you chose the teacher of separation, scarcity, smallness, right, fear, the world is going to feel like a prison. Mm -hmm. Like it's happening to you. Poor me, victim, right? If you choose Holy Spirit, who is really the memory of the divine, who is really the voice for God, who is, I would say, like the ambassador of love, if you choose the Holy Spirit or spirit as your teacher, the whole world becomes a classroom. Right. And I think that that's that's also relevant for people who don't necessarily consider themselves um, theistic, right? That it doesn't, it's it's semantic. It's like that yeah. for you, maybe that word is, is inner wise self or it's oh, high self or, or I would say you're smart, your smarty pants self or your wicked smart person. Like, you know, <laughs> it, you can call it what your goodness. Yeah. You don't have to call it God. You can call it your goodness. Like I don't get too attached. Like I, I have a very deep, um, I have a very deep faith, but not even though I was raised Catholic, like I'm a spiritual mutt. I pull from all different places. Mm-hmm. I'm not attached to anybody calling it God. Call it whatever you want to call it. But I always say I'm not attached to you. Um, um, I'm not attached to what you call it. I am attached to, and I say jokingly, I am attached with people having a relationship with something that yeah. reminds them of their peacockness, that reminds them of their highest self and their capacity to choose. Because in every single moment, whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you choose it, you are making a choice. Mm-hmm. Even by not choosing, that's a choice. So in every moment you are choosing either your experience of heaven, peacefulness, unity, oneness, love, brotherhood, or you are choosing the experience of hell. Separation, yeah. scarcity, fear, competition, not enough right? Kids being separated at the border from the parents, like all the stuff, all the stuff that makes us crazy. So it's not about being theistic or religious or whatever, being all woo-woo. It's about tapping into that spark of goodness and love that exists in all beings and creatures. Yeah, exactly. Like love, right, is another word that you can use for that. I would say God is love. God to me, like all the love that's ever been given or received. If you picture it as some old white dude or a brown dude in a robe, great. If you want to see it as the universe, great. If you want to call it mother nature, I don't give a shit. (laughs) What I do care about is that you have this understanding that all it really is, all of it is love trying to express itself and that you actually do your part. Yep. And, and I, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this. So it's like, really, that's everywhere all the time. I mean, love, yeah. love is everywhere. And, and yet it's like, obviously, people do sometimes intentionally, intentionally harm, right? Yeah. And so it's like, where I was like to say, like, if God is love, then wherever love is happening, God's there, right? It's just yes. like, that's the word that you want to use. Um, but what about the times and the places where, you know, that night of May 6th or with what's happening at the border right now, it's like, it's not that God is nowhere to be found and love is nowhere to be found, but like, what is that other thing? It's just, yeah, I mean, you know, look, it depends on the, it depends on the angle you want to take, 
right? Yeah. Some people will say, oh, it's pure evil or whatever. Like what A Course in Miracles says, and actually what yoga says too, which is interesting because they're both non-dualistic thought systems, right? The, the, the philosophy of yoga, and um, I always say Course in Miracles is not a religion, it's not a dogma, it's a teaching tool. It is a, it's an opportunity to think differently is what it really is. And so what A Course in Miracles would say is that this whole world is just a dream. It's not real. What yoga says, they call it the maya, the illusion, right? So we are having a dream that we uh, have somehow separated from God. We created this world. So I would often say, like, God isn't, like, I always say it's like, and I always try to bring it down this way where it makes sense, but it's still too, like, what to people? But what I would say is that, like, yeah, like, we're dreaming a dream of separation, that we are asleep in the mind of God is one dreaming a dream of separation where we created a world that in a lot of ways is a nightmare. You know what I mean? And we can awaken to the truth of ourselves at any time. But I always say, if it, even if it's not real, let's just say that that thought system is 100% true. There's no way to prove it, but let's say if it was actually true. It's like, while I'm here in the illusion or in the dream, don't be an asshole. Be helpful <laughs> and not a hindrance, right? So the way that we talk about in A Course in Miracles was we say this. There's only two things that are happening at any given time. People are either showing love and extending love, or they are crying out for it. They are crying out for love, and they are crying out for help. They have forgotten themselves. So I think about it like this. I'm going to return to that point in a second, so help me get back there if I, if I lose my train of thought. Yeah. So the way I try to teach it to my mentoring clients, my spiritual mentoring clients, is I say, think of your mind as like being um, a duplex. A side-by-side, -side, right, duplex. On one side is where the ego lives, which I call the drunk, crazy neighbors. <laughs> On the other side is where spirit or Holy Spirit or love, I don't your spiritual team. I talk a lot about my spiritual team. I say, this is where your spiritual team lives. And I say, we spend, as humans, so much time over there with the ego, the drunk, crazy neighbors. It's so fucking loud. Right? The, the potty sounds, the bad music, the booze, the drugs, all the things we do to numb our suffering, to numb our, our sense of love and who we are, right? It's so loud. It's like, but over there is miserable. And I always say to my friends and my spiritual mentoring clients, and I say, you can always go next door to spirit and borrow sugar anytime that you want to. Awesome. And what yeah. happens is we spend too much time over here. And we often say, like, the voice for God right? It's the still quiet voice. Mm -hmm. But if you have no spiritual practices in line, you have no meditation practice or prayer practice or contemplation or just quiet time. If you have no time when you're still and you turn down the volume, how can you hear it? Right. All you're going to be hearing is the kegger going on at the crazy. Yes, right. Like, right. Yeah. It's like, woo, whatever. But here's yeah. Right. So, so to, to kind of like get back to my point, Mm -hmm. When somebody is showing love or extending love, they're in the right side of the duplex. Mm -hmm. You're in literally your right mind. And what I always say about the guy that murdered my mother is, and he was caught, by the way. But what I always say is, he was out of his mind, literally. Yep. Yeah. He had left his right mind. He had forgotten who he was because a happy person in alignment with the divine self, whatever you call it, would never have done that. Right. He would have paused. Even let's just say he kicked her or punched her once. If he had reclaimed his peacockness, yep. he never would have continued. He literally left his mind. So if somebody is showing love or extending love, what is the only sane response? 
if somebody is showing love, yeah, yeah. If somebody is is crying out for love or crying out for help, which you know, what is the only sane response? Love. Yeah. But a lot of people get confused here because so we say in the Course in Miracles, um, you know, the peace of God lies in forgiveness. Forgiveness is the pathway. But what a lot of people do is, like I would say, people cry out for love and help in really ways. Mm -hmm. In really fucked up ways, right? And so it's like, but what we do is when we see a brother or a sister behaving that way, we get repelled. We we go like this. It's like, no. And because we love to be right. We mm-hmm. love to judge them, and I would, I would say in their moment of clumsiness, in their moment of insanity, mm-hmm. when they have left their mind, they have lost their mind. And I always say, whoever is sanest in the room, the country, the leader, the, whoever is the sanest one at the time, has to step up and be the voice for love. Yes. So being, like, people always say to me, I'm supposed to show him love? He raped me, or he did this, or he did that, or yeah. they because we can always come up with a litany of reasons of why a brother or sister doesn't deserve our love. What I always say is extending love does not mean that you become a doormat. You don't lay down and let people walk all over you and wipe their dirty feet on you. You don't say it's okay that you did that. But there's a difference between saying you have to go to jail or prison, right? You, you get the death penalty or whatever we do. Because it, it, with, with a sense of vengeance, with a sense right. of separation and hatred versus you rape little kids. So my brother, you have to go someplace where we yep. can keep the rest of us safe. Absolutely. You can still seek justice. You can still hold people accountable. You can mm-hmm. still put them where they belong. Yeah. You know, and, and we t- I heard the story one time of like, you know, people were like, well, that old Nazi guy shouldn't go to prison. I mean, he's 91. It's like the dude murdered millions of people. Gotta be held accountable. I have compassion. Nobody likes to put a 91-year-old dude in jail. But it's like you made choices that have caught up to you. And the way this system works here in the illusion is we have prisons. Let's not even get excited about how unfair oh, so much that is. But you know what I'm saying? But so much of that is you can still be a voice for love. You can still hold people accountable. You can still like say, I don't agree with what you did, but we can still do it in a loving way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you said something else that I wanted to go back to is like in, in the example of, of that guy who killed your mom, that he was not in his mind. Completely true because I think Yes, our brains, our minds are meaning-making machines, so we're always going to be trying to understand what's happening. And as adults, we hopefully have a little bit more critical awareness skills and things like that. But like kids, certainly they don't. They're just trying to make meaning out of everything. And when there's something that actually there might not be a good explanation for, because it's right, then it's like the kid often interprets it as, well, it must be something about me. Like that kid's default is to then, which then screws up their perception of the peacockness and all of that. Yes, yes, I'm a prime example of that. Like I was like, why does everything I love leave? Because after my mother died, my father didn't want us. He'd already moved on with his life. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up going to live with an aunt and uncle that I didn't even know. And I lived with them for five years. And then I was on my own from the time I was 17 on. So in my most developmental years, when I was turning into a woman, right, when I was like growing boobs, getting my period and starting to have sex and make all these decisions, I was making them on my own. 
Mm. Right? Like I was trying to navigate the world from this, like, who am I? What is all this? And I was just like, well, my mom left. It didn't matter how she left. I right. just like she left. Yeah. And then my, my biological father was it like, whatever. And then my dad, my stepdad, like he didn't want us. And then, you know, my aunt and uncle who we live with, it's like literally like the day I moved out to go to college, um, cause they had, look, I'm not judging them. This is just reality. They had two little kids of their own. They got my room. So I didn't have a home to go home to from 17 on. It was like, you better figure out what you're doing. And so it was like, I just felt like everything I love left that. So what does that say about me? And then it became very complicated because then it's like, you're, you know, for me, my friends became my family. And then there was so much attachment to like my boyfriends, like they became like the, 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 oh my God, you know, whatever. And so my yeah. sense of self was definitely fucked up for like a long time. Yeah. And so, and then slowly, like when, you know, when Ram Dass says, you know, beautiful Ram Dass says, we're all just walking each other home. <laughs> Love that. And so I started to find people who were older than me, smarter than me, wiser than me, who had been there before me because they had a little more age. Like it's when I found Marianne and she became mm -hmm. you know, my mentor, my spiritual mom. And, and I found A Course in Miracles and I found yoga and I found like, you know, shamanism. Like I started getting curious about all these things. And, and I was like, and I started making choices that really reflected, you know, what was true for me. And, and it changed the whole way that I did did life because I went from being a victim, right, to actually, I always say, I, I, and this is why I do the work that I do, because I always say, like, I say this, um, I always say that A Course in Miracles police would yell at me for saying it, but I say <laughs> it because I, I, love the, I love the image of this. I always say the world needs help. God sent you. Nice. So what are you here to do? Like, let's get to work. So mm -hmm. I love to help people remember who they are, get down to the business of transforming those old stories, mm -hmm. right, into the power that, like, that lies within it. And how can we go out and become, and in the Course in Miracles, they would call it the teachers of God. Like, I would just, like, some people call themselves healers, light workers, miracle workers. I, just be a good yeah. person. I don't even care what you call it. It's don't just, be <laughs> Yeah, like, it's like, just be a helper yeah. and not a hindrance. Right. But I'm smart enough to know that if I try to do it all on my own, we're fucked. So yeah. I call it my spiritual team. Yeah. You know? I check in with them the first thing in the morning. Like of Course in Miracles says, I will no longer make decisions on my own. Mm -hmm. I will no longer make decisions on my own because it's no longer smart to do so, right? <laughs> because if I'm driving the bus alone with that ego, we are in trouble. So I yeah. have to call spirit in every single day, first thing in the morning. And that's why daily spiritual practices are so important right. because they align you with the divine part of yourself that is naturally inclined to love. Yeah. And otherwise we don't even know how to turn down the volume on the ego because I love the duplex metaphor. And one of the other ones that I love is I think it came from um, podcaster Jess Lively, credit where credit is due, but she talked about it like, the ego is the fire hydrant that's just spewing in your ear constantly and the intuition or fill in whatever word, right, yes. is, is like a well. And so you have to intentionally go down there or you're not going to hear shit. So if you want to be yeah. able to hear that kind of small, quiet voice, it's learning how to go, which is part of why my name of my business is Wonder Well, because I think there's so much in that image. Yeah. 
of the well as the intuition and learning how to like, this is the fire hydrants never going anywhere. No. Oh no, no, that's not a problem. It's it's got permanent real estate. That is not a problem. (laughs) So I love that you call wonder well, because it is, and, and, and it aligns with something else I talk about, which is human beings. We live a very broad life and we have a very broad concept, meaning horizontally. It's like we're born, we die, and everything in between is like wicked fucking hot, right? And it's like (laughs) we need to stop living linearly and and horizontally, and we need to go more depth, vertically. We have to get vertical, and that's the thing. But part of getting vertical is also this imagery of like not just going deep, but we have to stand up. We have to show up. We have to speak up. We have to use our voice, and that's one of the things. Telling my mother's story, the reason why I'm – Voice for the voiceless. Tell yes. speaking up about people who have been inflicted with violence, people who have been abused, like bullying, like all of it, racism, homophobic, all the stuff where we try to make the other and separate, you know? So I'm always going to be a voice for the voiceless. And animals, too. That's the whole point. They don't get to say, please stop murdering me. They don't get to say, please stop raping me. Please stop killing us, right? So I've always been an advocate. There's a reason why I have a big mouth. You know what I mean? And people never believe me, but I always say I am an introvert who makes herself do extroverted things on behalf of what I'm passionate about. My ministry, the great great Audre Lorde says, um, when I care to be powerful, right? When I care to be in use to power, it becomes less and less important whether or not I'm afraid. Yeah. I just really want to. Amen. Amen to yeah, all of please, Right? So like for me, it's like stand up, speak up, but show up. Yes. And you know, and I don't know who first said it. Some people say it was Tony Robbins, whatever. I don't remember anybody saying it like, like, you know, but that's how it is. It all gets in there. And I'm like you, I always give credit. If I know who said it, I think it's awesome. I always say. So maybe it was him. I don't know. But I've always said like your life is happening for you. It's happening for you and not to you. It's not something that's being inflicted on you. It's always opportunities for healing and love. Maximal opportunities for healing and love. So when somebody comes into your space, your sphere of influence, I always say, send them away. Send them on their way better than when they got there. Wherever you go, may you be a blessing. So if... If a listener is going, well, okay, so if I did get raped or I had a, um, I was sexually abused or I had an abusive parent or whatever, how could you say that's happening f- for me? Like well, just devil's okay. advocate. Well, yeah. So let's just talk about my mom's murder, right? Yeah. So that allowed me to experience a level of suffering that, ex- you know, when like when the Grinch, you know, when the Grinch who stole Christmas or whatever, that, that whole story of the mm-hmm. Grinch. When he's standing on top of the mountaintop and he says, my hat grew grew three sizes that day. That level of suffering allows you to expand if you're paying attention beyond your own suffering. And it allowed me to start recognizing the suffering of others. Yeah. And that's why I say, if that hadn't happened to me, I am telling you I would be a different person. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to become more authentic. It allowed me to speak up. It gave me reasons um, to not allow bullying to happen in front of me. It, it, cha- it, it made me want to try to eradicate as much violence in the world as I possibly could. It changed me and allowed me to feel at a really, really, really deep level and inspired the work that I do. So what I, what I often say to people is this, 
In the Course in Miracles, it says you can have a grievance or you can have a miracle. You cannot have both. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. You can have a grievance or you can have a miracle. You cannot have both. And so what happens is when we hold on to those grievances of you raped me, you abused me, you betrayed me, you left me, what, whatever the story mm -hmm. is. And, the, and I, I say this sometimes and I, I do not mean it with a lack of... Um, sensitivity and compassion but on some level the details don't even matter right. all we know is somehow you are suffering and you are hurt and i always say this right pain is inevitable being human but right. suffering is optional and so what so many people do is they have a pain that could be healed but they choose to build an altar to it and they start worshiping at the feet of their pain and it becomes their suffering. And it becomes this fucking bag of stuff that they are hauling everywhere they go. And yeah. so you can have a grievance or you can have a miracle. So I think of it like this. If you have a particular person, situation, country, government, it doesn't matter what the thing is, right? Mm -hmm. And you say you're bad, you're wrong, you're evil, you did this to me. I'm going to put you in my little grievance prison in my mind. I'm going to hold you in a place where you are not lovable, you are not worthy of love, you're evil, you're separate, whatever, you're bad, whatever the thing is. You did this thing to me. Okay. Yeah. So I can riff on this in so many ways, but I'm going to stick with this one because I find it very helpful. So the imagery of you basically put that person in a prison. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you feel justified for your anger. You feel like you're right. You feel superior. You get a lot out of keeping that wound alive. Mm -hmm. You get to be special. You often get attention. Oh, of course, Janie drinks five gallons of wine every night. She was raped when she was a kid, yeah. right? We get all these excuses of why we get to play small, mm -hmm. right? But here's the thing is that the way the prison system works, we don't just lock people up and mm -hmm. then everybody gets to go home. We have to have people guard the prisoners. So if you have created your own little prison system where you've got some people in there, who do you think's in the prison with them standing guard? Yeah, you are. You are not free. You're in the prison with them. Hmm. So even if you just wanted to baseline it as selfish self-preservation, <laughs> forgive them so that you can get out of the prison. Right. Forgive them selfishly so that you can be free. Yeah. But what has happened and why I love stories so much, and this is part of what, um, you know, I've, I've been working on kind of like this TED Talk thing. And one of the, the, the hot beat of it is if you know another person's story, on some level, there's no way you cannot have compassion for them and even come to love them. Yeah. And we know that it's possible because I have seen it time and time again in my time on this planet where I have, I can just speak for myself, I've forgiven my mom's murderer. Mm. I've forgiven all kinds of people, you know? I forgave my family for how they responded and reacted yeah. to the whole thing, how, like, everything just blew apart. It was a fucking shit show. It was a shit show, my family, after my mother died. But all of us, we have to forgive ourselves. We mm. have to forgive each other because here's the reality about humans. You know, like in, in the Lord's Prayer in Christianity or in Catholic tradition, you know, the Our Father, right? It says, forgive us our trespasses mm -hmm. as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we already know, even back then, they knew humans are clumsy. 
we're just clumsy. We don't mean to do some of the things that we do. We're always doing it when we do something unkind out yeah. of fear. Yeah. Always out of fear, always out of hurt because hurt people hurt people. So when I was doing all this work about writing the book and like trying to figure out like who was this guy that killed my mother, um, the stuff that I found out about this guy and his family, it was just like, oh. Mm. And I stopped seeing him as a monster and I started seeing him as a really flawed human being. Yeah. And I started to see him also, look, here's the, the other thing we like to do. You know, whether we like it or not, they're children of the divine too. Mm-hmm. They're our brothers and sisters too. It's just that they've forgotten themselves. So how is it helpful to not try to bring them back home to the truth of themselves too? Right. Well, and that's, I mean, what I find just so real and grounded and important about the way that you talk about story is that you're not minimizing. Oh, what hell happened, no. Right? You're not just like, oh, well, that's your story. So you're a little too attached to it and you should move on. Like, I think that's what happens in, in this sort of like personal growth and spiritual oh, yeah. space, right? Is like, it's either, it's either like, um, worshiping at the altar of the story and oh my God, poor me, I'm going to be, you know, in therapy for the rest of my life trying to get over this or having the other message of, you know, that's, it's all an illusion and your story is irrelevant. So you should just detach from it. Like what you're talking about is honoring the story, but it's, it's building a life from there. It's not staying. Yeah. So a hundred percent. I love what you just said because what I always say to my mentoring clients is hashtag now what? <laughs> yes. It doesn't matter how you got the suffering in the bag of shit. It is yours now. What are we going to do with it? Now what? So part of my process is we begin there tilling the soil, mm-hmm. getting to the roots and the rocks and the grubs and the worm and where did all this start and what the hell happened? Because in order to know where you're going, you got to know where you're coming from. Yep. But I just say, let's, can we please just not build an altar and stay here? But Mm -hmm. we also don't spiritually bypass it. Like there are times when like, you know, you're in the yoga world when there have been teachers that slept with a bunch of students and did a bunch of crazy shit and people walking around like staying it away and being like, oh, they were doing the best that they could. No, sleeping with all those women in your little sex cult was not the best you could do. Yeah. We have to hold people accountable. We don't pretend like having a dead mother or being abused as a child doesn't fucking hurt. We right. don't pretend like it didn't happen. But here's what I will say. This is something that I found so fascinating. It's like, you know, I was the first guinea pig. Like, I went first. The only way I can talk about these things is through personal experience. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody's going to feel the same way, but I talk about this stuff because what if it's helpful to somebody? Mm-hmm. What if I say it in a way that somebody goes, oh, and they can put it in their little toolbox, right? So what I realized about my mom is that, like, how do I say this? Okay, we often feel like we are at the mercy of our feelings. We, we, we're like, I have this body, I feel that. I would say this meat puppet. You know, it's like we try to make it into a spirit sausage where we're like, we try to, sh- like, we're like, oh, like, I'm like, no, no, no. This body is not who you are, but this body like evokes a lot of feelings and stuff like that. So we often feel at the mercy of our feelings. I just, just how I feel. And what I say is this, is that actually feelings come from thoughts. 
Mm -hmm. So we have a thought first, but it happens so fast. We have a thought first that then shows up as a feeling. And if we are not disciplined through daily spiritual practices of some kind, I don't care what you do, take a walk in nature to praying, doing the rosaries, I don't care what you do. If we don't have a way to slow down so we can make a choice, those feelings will sometimes make us react. Yep. And we're almost always reacting out of our fear and our history. It's really different to be able to, in that moment, make a choice to respond. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what the word responsible, I always say we are 100% radically responsible for our happiness yep. and our peace. But if you look at the word responsible, it says we, it, it's the ability to respond. I am response-able. Mm-hmm. So I know that I could slow down and choose, right? So here's what I would start to see happening about my mom. When I chose to think about the 12 years I got with her and what an imprint, what an imprint she left on me. Like that, not just in the DNA. People always tell me I look exactly like her, which is, which is nice. I have her hands for sure and I have her feet. Uh, but I'm like, okay, um, you know, it's, it's, when I focus on everything she taught me, she was the one who taught me about speaking up. You know, she was an advocate for, for children and she was an advocate for animals and she was the one who didn't tolerate bullies, you know, and it probably got her into trouble. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't mean that like, it's like, you know, I, I've, I've often said about women um, and, and please, I'm going to use a word that might make some people uncomfortable, but I often say like having a pussy, having a vagina is a very powerful thing, but it can yep. also get you killed. Mm-hmm. And so my mother though taught me about speaking up and standing up for what you believe and for what's important. So when I think about my mom and her power and, and her vibrancy and, and how people loved her so much, right? I just think like, what a blessing, what a yeah. gift. She is still teaching me from beyond the grave. Mm -hmm. When I choose to think about those last moments in her suffering, then I suffer. Mm. But I can place my mind wherever I want to. And what happens is when we think back on those moments of suffering, we cause the movie to play in our heads that relives it. So, so often with trauma, Right, because the body retains, it's like a sponge. It has its own cellular, you know all this. I'm not telling you anything new. So the body retains all this. But I can actively choose where I want to place my mind. Mm -hmm. If I do practices that teach me how to do that. Because in yoga and in A Course in Miracles, it says the same thing, basically. An undisciplined mind can accomplish nothing. Yeah, and I think that is so important because I can imagine some people saying, what do you mean I can just place my mind on the gratitude for the years that I had rather than like, of course my mind's naturally going to go there. And while it's true at that biological cellular level, that that would be the default, right? That's the default. So if we want the experience to be any different, we have to use those tools and use those skills that help us to shift that spotlight of our awareness to a different place. Choose the miracle instead of the grievance. To choose the love instead of the fear, to choose, like I always say, to move from the pain to the peace. I'm not saying never visit it. Yeah. But don't set up camp. Don't buy real estate. If you want a vacation there, you want to take a weekend vacation, great. (laughs) 
but don't buy real estate in your suffering. It doesn't serve you. And I always say, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Eckhart Tolle who said, you know, suffering is a great teacher. Like suffering is necessary until it becomes unnecessary. And then I say suffering is a great teacher until you find a better one. <laughs> yes. And yeah. that's why I'm a spiritual mentor because it's like I'm not afraid of people's stories. I'm not afraid of people's wounds. I'm not afraid of holding the space for people's stuff. Mm -hmm. But then it's my job to help you to remember yeah. who you really are and what a great teacher does. What a great mentor does, what a great therapist does, what a great priest does, what a great coach does, I don't care what you call it, what God ultimately on some level does is it helps you to hold the vision and the strength of yourself. We hold it for you until you are ready to take it on and receive it as your own. So we walk with you. So in A Course in Miracles, so my whole work, my, my, my work is called Fearless Flow, okay? So Fearless Flow, mentoring, Fearless Flow, yoga, like whatever. Uh, living in the fearless flow. But what that means is, there's a beautiful line at the end of Course in Miracles that says, if you knew who walked beside you on this way that you have chosen, you would realize that fear is impossible. Hmm. If you knew wow. who walked beside you, and the way that you come to know who walks beside you is by turning down the volume that's always telling you that you're alone that nobody understands you, that you're misunderstood, that you'll never heal. Like women, please, I say this all the time, please stop posting shit that says, I'm a beautiful mess. Yeah. yeah. You are not a mess unless you choose to be one. Mm -hmm. You are not broken, right? Paramahansa Yogananda said, you know, autobiography of a yogi, if anybody's ever read the book. I have this quote next to a picture of my mom on my fridge. I tell this story all the time. It's been there for like 20 years. And it says, whom God protects, nothing can destroy. Wow. Who you are can never be destroyed. Who you really are is spirit. Right. They can kill your body. They can try and hurt your feelings. They can try and hurt you, wound you, whatever. But you are not broken unless you choose to be. Yep. Who you are is unchangeable. Who you are is ultimately eternal. And I'm just at a place in my life where I say, you know, like, I'm way more afraid of not doing what I came here to do, to live out my ministry, than I am afraid of what they'll say about me if I do it. Mm -hmm. And it's time for people to stop playing dumb about Wait, who they are. Yeah, exactly. And of course, in miracles, it says, you know, we're given, we're each given an individual curriculum. We are each given an assignment. It goes back to the world needs help. God sent you. So what is your ministry? What is your mission? What is your message? What is your movement? Why are you here? And I'm telling you guys, it's, you're not here to suffer. You are here simply. I always say we have an identity problem and a purpose problem. The identity problem is like we, we don't get that we're just love. Your identity is love. Your only purpose is to extend that love. When you get that, shit clears up real fast. Mm -hmm. If you want to extend love by being a school teacher, awesome. You want to be a football player? Awesome. You want to be a therapist? Great. You want to be a writer and a speaker? Awesome. You want to be a trash collector? I don't care how you extend that love. But wherever you go, be the bringer of peace. Be the example. Like Gandhi says, my life is my message. 
So in every moment, every choice you make, every word you speak, every thought you think, mm -hmm. you are broadcasting which thought system you believe. You are broadcasting which side of the duplex you live on. You are yeah. broadcasting which teacher you have chosen. Yeah, there's a Howard Thurman quote that reminds me of too that I love that goes, um, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Yes! You know, Swami, Swami Kripalu, it reminds me of that one. I love that. Swami Kripalu says, you know, you don't have to fight the darkness. You just have to turn on the light. Yeah. And we spend, like right now, especially like the, the political divide, all the hatred towards, you know, like all the stuff. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I want to keep it clean, right? I want to keep it clean. It's like, you know, it's like you don't have to fight the darkness. You become the light. You be the light. You show that there's a different way. We don't get there by fighting each other and accusing each other and judging each other. And what I often say to people, look, and I'm not judging anybody, but what I people, a lot of people are like, oh, Trump's a problem, Trump's a problem. I said he's not the problem. He's the he's a symptom of the larger problem. Because yeah. enough people thought that that was a good idea. Enough right. people still think that certain things are okay when clearly for a lot of us it feels like inhumane and not loving and so when the world changes their mind the world will change you change your mind you change the world so it's not like it's like people always like oh he's evil I'm like it's a reflection so we call mirror. it yeah. outward reflection of an inward condition so I always say, if you don't like what's happening out there, it's not so much, Marianne always says, Marianne Williamson, it's not about getting the message out. It's about getting the message in. Because hmm. if enough people, Howard Thurman, come alive, enlightened, awakened to their true nature, that shit will no longer be acceptable. Amen. Children hmm. being trafficked for sex, not okay. Little kids stabbing on the world, not okay. Right? Uh, African-American men overwhelmingly, Latino, yeah. brown-skinned people overwhelmingly being incarcerated will not be okay. Homophobia, not okay. Bullying, not okay. When a not people, animals being slaughtered for food all over the world, which is killing the planet, hello, won't be okay. When enough people stop, like, and this is the other thing about doing your work and why I do the work that I do and why I'm so passionate about helping people is because it's like, we're in trouble. Like, we need some yeah. help. You know what I mean? And we need enough people to heal. Like adults, so many adults right now are wounded kids walking around in adult bodies. Just bumping into shit. Just bumping into shit. And mm -hmm. they, they don't like how they feel, so they drink too much, they smoke, they shoot up, there's opioid crisis, they sex it out, they shop it out, they Facebook it out. Like there's all this disconnect because we don't want to feel these things. It's like, no, your pain is alerting you to the fact that something's wrong. Yeah. And hearing you say all of that around like the homophobia and the mass incarceration and all of these things that are happening that we, we also have to keep our eyes open to that. We can't just numb it out. Right. I mean, we can, people do, but being able to open up to that, to that reality and to decide that we care enough to do something about it. Like 
that's why I think that this work, I think sometimes gets a reputation for being like self-indulgent, like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, do all this like personal development work. I'm gonna read my self-help books. I'm gonna listen to my podcast or I'm gonna, you know, pay for my coaching or whatever. It's not self-indulgent because Lao Tzu, if there's to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the city, in the home, in the heart, that it starts with you and it starts with you waking up and you remembering the truth. And then that, the ripple effect of that is massive. It is massive. And, I, and to a point, I will say, like, I understand why some people think that, though. Because what it can be, it can be totally self-indulgent. And that's why you and I are on the same page around when I talk about, like, what I do. You know, it's like, so people like say, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I work with people who have had more than their fair share of wicked hard shit happen to them. And I help them to lead a life like nothing bad has ever happened. And that doesn't mean that we leave our dead behind and we don't forget about where we came from. It's like, no, but we take that stuff, transform story to glory. We get out there and we do the work. But it's only effective when we actually apply it. And yeah. what a lot of people love to do with yoga, with A Course in Miracles, with any, any spiritual thought system, is they become theorists. They mm -hmm. love to talk about it and philosophize about it and pray on it. And, and wear the cute pants. But they don't, right, but they don't actually do anything with it. You have to become an activist in some way, you, meaning you have to become active. And I'm all about taking big spiritual concepts and making them applicable. Like, like I am like a blue-collar preacher. Like, I am like, let's bring it down to earth and use this shit. We can't just talk about it anymore. We can't just go to yoga anymore. Yes. You gotta take it to the streets, man. You gotta take it to the voting booth. You gotta take it to your social media feed. Like you have to yeah. be the embodiment of love. It's not enough to talk about anymore. And there are a yeah. lot of people sitting in their rooms feeling superior because they read, you know, a return to right. love. You know, they can talk about the desire map or whatever the thing is, right? right? But like <laughs> a return to Brene Brown, and I'm like, but what are you doing with it? Yes. It's one thing to bitch about. Trump or like little kids being separated or whatever. Pick your thing, right? Pick your thing, right? It's like, but if you don't like, you know, and, and it, there's a line in A Course of Miracles that a lot of people confuse, right? And it says, um, I need do nothing. And what a lot of people feel like that means is, well, it's all an illusion, so who gives a shit? And I'm always like, don't be yeah. weird. You see a starving kid, you give him a sandwich. You hear somebody being raped in an alley, you intervene or you call, you do something, you take action. And even somewhere, I don't know the Bible, so somebody, somebody one of your Christian people, if they're listening, might correct me, but yeah. I know somewhere it says something that says, faith without works is dead. Yeah, yeah. It's not enough to just have the faith. You have to take action. So what I say about that line in The Course in Miracles, it says, I need do nothing. I need do nothing on my own. Meaning, because on my own, I'm going to choose the left side of the duplex where the ego lives. So anything that I do is going to be inspired and informed by the voice for the divine, for love, by my spiritual team. I need do nothing on my own. I need to do some shit with the right teacher. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you, you made that distinction because you're right. I mean, you absolutely can be in these concepts and into this kind of stuff and not be applying it to the world in the way that the world needs it. So I'm really glad that we're getting that message out there. Um, and just to be mindful of your time, yes. I want to ask 
you one final question, um, which shockingly is, what's the fucking point? Of it all? Of it all. To get better at giving and receiving love. Yeah. Amen. To me, that's it. That's why yeah. we're here. It's this big, you know, like, so it, it's like, look, on one level, I always think of things in terms of levels of teaching, right? Which to me is, if all the traditions are really not full of shit, what they all tell us is that we are one with the divine and that the divine is our home. So on some level, I kind of say like, we never really left. It is all an illusion. It's not really real, but it feels real. Yeah. So while I'm here in the illusion, I always jokingly say, I am weird. Like if you know me, I'm kind of a weirdo, but I always say, don't be a weirdo. Don't be a fucking weirdo, right? While you're here, try to be a blessing. Try to be helpful. If you screw up, apologize, own your shit, heal yourself, right? Go out and like, it's, it's like so great. And, and, and there's a, a, a prayer from A Course in Miracles. I'll leave you with this. And, and it's also the reason why I love the prayer of St. Francis, which starts with make me an instrument of your peace, right? There's a line, there's a beautiful prayer from A Course in Miracles that I paraphrase a little bit, but I just switched the words around. And it says, please have me go where you would have me go. And I'm talking God, love, spirit, goodness, I don't care. Please have me go where you would have me go. Have me do what you would have me do. Have me say what you would have me say into whom. Please use me. While I'm here, I want to be in use to love. I want to be in service to love. Right? I say this being human is like being in the fucking forgiveness Olympics. Yes. While I'm here, I'm going to get at least a bronze. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like, I want to go for the goal. I'm going to do the best that I can to always stay on that side of the duplex that reminds me of that peacock that I am. That reminds me of that child of the God that I am. That reminds me of the inherent goodness that's not just in me, it's in everybody. So when I'm looking at you, even when you've forgotten yourself, even when you're doing something crazy or evil or whatever, it is my job to reflect back to you the truth of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's how healing happens. So for me to be here, what's the point? It's to love each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Right. Awesome. Well, I, before we close, I definitely want you to share with people kind of what you're up to. I know you mentioned the book, and I know a podcast is coming, I hope soon. Um, but yeah, where people can connect with you and what you're up to. Yeah, so I mean, the easiest way to find me is you can always just go to my website. And I always spell it out because people forget the second E in my last name. So it's Karen Kenny. It's K A R E N K E N N E Y dot com. You can find me there. You can totally find me on Facebook. I do Facebook Lives three times a week uh, Miracle Minded Mondays, Wise Up Wednesday, Fearless Flow Fridays. Um, so you just find me on my personal page. I also have a business page. And then on Instagram, um, my handle, as they would say, is just Karen Kenny Live, L-I-V-E. Um, so they can find me there. And yeah, so I'm doing a five-day retreat at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York in August. That's going to be amazing. And then I do a big yoga retreat with three of my girlfriends in New Hampshire in November. We always have like 120 people come. That's awesome. I'm writing my book. I hope to have some sort of a show out, whether it's a podcast or a video cast or something like that soon. I'm already doing all the Facebook lives, so why not? Um, yep. And I have my own retreats that I do. And then I also, I work with people. Mostly that's, that's the main hot beat of the work that I do is I teach one yoga class still because I just, 
Some students have been with me for like 15, 17 years. So I just keep it so I get to see them because I love them. But mainly I do spiritual mentoring work one-to-one -one, uh, virtually with people. So you can be anywhere in the world. And I just really, it's like that whole process, living in the fearless flow, helping people transform, move from their story to their glory. And so that we can become and remember like who we really are and go out there and be helpful and just spread the love and the light. So that's pretty much it. I'm dying. I'm trying to get my book done, you guys. So pray for me. Yes. Send up some mojo. Like, you know, like help put it in the ether so I can download it. You know. Yeah. What I mean? Yeah. Do you have like a due date for like a manuscript or anything? I'm trying. Look, it, I'm trying to get the first, a rough, rough, rough first draft done by like the end of the year or oh, whatever. Right. And um, yeah, I'm turning fifty this year. So for me, I'm like, come on, let's go. Yeah. You know? So, um, and so I trust that, look, I, I always say, like, I am just the faucet. I am not the water. So my job is to just be the most receptive vessel I can be. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. So Awesome. Well, I can't wait to read it. And I hope to get to come to one of your events sometime soon. Um, I'm so, um, it was such a blast talking with you. Yeah. And it was such a pleasant experience. And I loved it. And you're so smart. I can just tell, like, you know, the way you responded, it was so thoughtful. And you were able to, like, hold like the space because I know I can be a little energetic. So I appreciate you just um, like being in the container and in it with me. And I know you are doing really important work in the world too. So thank you, my sister, for uh, being part of the solution and part of the, the help, the help is, you know what I mean? Amen. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find past episodes and show notes at wonderwelltherapy.com slash podcast. We'll take you to the place to find all of that good stuff if you're looking for links or resources or anything else related to the show. Also, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, it helps more people find out about the show. That's bit.ly slash WTFP review. I'll see you next time. And until then, keep asking those big questions. <laughs>